0: Welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle, and today I will be talking with Professor Dominic Johnson about his new book entitled Strategic Instincts, The Adaptive Advantages of Cognitive Biases in International Relations. Professor Johnson is the Alistair Buchan Professor of International Relations at St. Anthony's College of Oxford. He is the author of God is Watching You from Oxford University Press. as well as Overconfidence and War, and the co-author of Failing to Win, both from the Harvard University Press. Thank you, Professor Johnson, for being here today. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and kind of how you came to writing this?
1: Sure. Well, um, the basic story is that I started life as a biologist Um, I was interested in animal behavior, and that was in fact my my PhD, Um, but I'd always had a kind of fascination with history and politics, that was sort of my hobby, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there were a lot of interesting lessons and insights from evolution and animal behavior, which applied also to to human beings, Um, And after my PhD, I decided to go and study politics seriously to investigate this and um, ended up staying in political science, which has been great fun. So I do interdisciplinary work um, teaching international relations, but uh, in my research, trying to explore insights from biology and psychology and evolution for uh, how human beings interact with each other, um, even at The large scale of international politics.
0: So what kind of guided you into writing this book? What kind of was your process?
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that attracted me initially um, into the field was that there was a lot of interest in non-rational behavior and psychological biases that uh, seemed to be quite common in politics. And are blamed for a lot of disasters and policy failures and wars. Um, One in particular was overconfidence and there'd been a lot written about um, why overconfidence was so widespread, particularly it seemed on the eve of war. Um, And I was fascinated by this because in the experimental psychology literature and the social psychology literature, this was sort of well understood as a human um, trait. Um, So we shouldn't be surprised by it, Um, and it could help account for the fact that we see overconfidence and uh, false optimism in all sorts of situations um, in everyday life, but also in business and politics and and war. Um, So my first book on overconfidence and war was just pointing out that um, we should expect this, given what we know about uh, human psychology. Um, And that was in 2004 when that book came out. And in the intervening years, I've just become more and more curious about why these biases of human nature should necessarily lead to bad outcomes. Um, We have them because they helped us make good decisions rather than bad ones. That's the sort of logic of why they evolved in the first place. And if that's the case, then... Um, I wanted to explore when they would be beneficial rather than disadvantageous, and this new book, *Strategic Instincts*, is exploring that. Um, when can these biases help us rather than hurt us?
0: So this is kind of counter to the uh, popular, the popular rational choice model in uh, in. Pol- uh- political studies. Um, and you argue that strategic in- these strategic instincts have shaped history and politics. So kind of where does the rational choice model fall apart in international relations? And why should we think about strategic instincts?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, one way of looking at it is that, you know, the rational model could be accurate most of the time. So people try very hard to make good decisions. They spend a lot of time gathering information um, considering their options, consulting widely, and oftentimes um, decision makers, bureaucrats, political leaders, you know, do make good decisions. So I'm not arguing that um, rational choice is bad or a bad ideal uh, to strive for. Um, really, I'm just exploring, you know, what are its limits? When when does rational choice um, run into problems or when does it fail to elicit the right kind of behaviour or motivation? Or emotion um, that sort of evolution set us up um, to have precisely because there are some situations where we we need to have a kind of um, kickstart to make us um, act react rapidly um, and in a way that might actually run counter to our more calculating um, alternatives. So the on the one hand, I'm sort of tempted to say, you know since no one's really looked at this before, maybe these strategic instincts or these cognitive biases are kind of helping us more often than not. And in fact, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who was the big uh, leader in this field of um, cognitive biases um, and won the Nobel Prize for Economics in his studies on um, behavioural economics, um, he he does sort of admit that um, while these do lead to disasters, Um, and uh, misperceptions in everyday life, they probably are pretty crucial. They help us get through the day, make roughly right decisions, um, interact successfully with other people. So although there are kind of high profile examples of when it goes wrong, and you can demonstrate in the lab that people are actually making bad decisions in economic games, for example, Um, in everyday life, maybe they're just, you know, crucial, necessary, um, or at least commonly helpful. Um, So in international politics, you know, you might imagine, well, that's sort of pushing it to its extreme. Um, Perhaps these evolved biases do work well at an everyday level. And the question becomes, to what extent do they scale up to still be useful, even in the complex world and massive scales of states interacting with each other? Um, so that's what the book tried to focus on. It took that question seriously and just tried to explore whether there were at least some cases where it might uh, work, even at that level.
0: So uh, these strategic in- instincts they arise from several cognitive biases that we all hold. Um, what what are these cognitive biases, and kind of yeah. where do they come from?
1: Right. Well, they're biologically. Many... Yeah. Okay. So I mean, s- some psychological dispositions we have we share with you know many other animals so it's common to point out that cognitive biases evolved because in the human ancestral past they were useful decision making devices which helped us make decisions under uncertainty when we didn't have good information they they were rapid um, heuristics that helped us make good decisions Um, but actually some of these go way back many millions of years because they are dispositions which we share with other animals. So the classic example is the fight or flight response. So when we're scared by um, a sudden danger, um, we actually have these amazing biological mechanisms which cause us to fight or flight or or freeze, um, which actually bypasses our conscious brain. And we take these actions without even thinking about it at all. And that's just not... um, unique to humans, that's, that's something all mammals do. So some of these are very ancient indeed, but most of the cognitive bias literature focuses, uh, focuses on biases which we, um, which we find in humans. And there's a huge list of them, there are hundreds. And um, there's been a few attempts to sort of document them all. And um, there, are, there are so many, it's hard to, you know, choose which one to study. For this book, I kept it very simple and I just picked three. I pointed out that the the logic could apply much more broadly, but I wanted to focus on three big ones which have already been used in the literature to explain disasters and failures and wars. And precisely because they've been used to explain those negative outcomes, I wanted to turn them on their head and just ask whether those same biases might sometimes be useful. So I looked at overconfidence and the second one I looked at was the so-called fundamental attribution error. It's a terrible name, but it's fascinating bias, which we can come back to. And then the third one is um, familiar again. It's the in-group out-group bias, the favoritism towards the in-group and then disfavoritism towards the out-group. So these are three big ones. They've been talked about a lot in um, in many disciplines, but certainly in in my new adopted discipline of international relations as being a problem and a cause of policy failure and a cause of wars or the exacerbation of conflict. Um, So they were kind of prime targets to just dust off and look at afresh um, with a kind of evolutionary eye to think through whether they might actually sometimes be useful.
0: And biology, evolutionary biology specifically, um, it's often been used in political rhetoric to justify discrimination, prejudice kind of what has changed and why should we ground political psychology in science and how can we kind of avoid, um, this bias?
1: Yeah. So the, there are many examples in the past of biology and evolution being used badly, um, to justify, um, actions that people want to take. Um, I'm not doing that whatsoever. Um, I'm not trying to justify anything. All I'm doing is looking to see whether there's an evolutionary logic between, uh, behind some of these um, cognitive biases, some of these traits of human nature, if you like, and then looking to see what their effects are. So I, I take some pains in the book to try and point out that um, all of these biases, you know, even if they do have some good effects, can also have terrible negative effects as well. Um, And I basically point out that um, when they are too extreme, then they can always be detrimental. Um, But in in no way do I sort of advocate them as being um, a good idea um, and that the kind of um, human nature, if you like, behind these biases is what would always lead to good outcomes in politics. Um, it's more looking at what their effects are and their consequences. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no social Darwinism here. It's just, um, looking at the science behind cognitive biases and what their consequences are beyond the lab.
0: So let's get into those cognitive biases. Um, what are kind of the benefits of overconfidence in international relations and what is overconfidence?
1: yeah okay well great question so let's start with what is overconfidence um yeah it's a tricky term because um by definition it seems like how could overconfidence be bad be be good right i mean by calling something overconfident it seems like you've got it wrong or there's a a a a bad uh, consequence um so some people have used alternative terms like positive illusions or false optimism and these are all measures of you know, what your expectations are about certain outcomes. So um, if you're a tennis player, you might, be, um, you might expect to win most of your games, but lose half of them. Um, that would be a kind of level of overconfidence um, or optimism. Um, so I use the term overconfidence because it's sort of commonly used. People aren't so familiar with positive illusions, which is the term used in some of the social psychology literature. False optimism, I think, is not quite the right term either because um, optimism itself raises questions about what exactly it means. But overconfidence I found useful as a term just because it um, highlights that we're interested in what people's expectations are compared to some kind of baseline. Um, And it's very difficult to establish what that baseline is. So in my chapters on overconfidence, I spend some time trying to work out Um, How do we know someone was overconfident at the time? How do we know that their expectations were too high, um, given the available evidence or given what other people thought at the time? Um, But it can be done, um, I think, within reason, so that you can start to make some assessments about the extent to which people were expecting, their expectations were too high. Um, So hopefully that kind of makes sense. I I have quite a lot of footnotes about the definition of overconfidence and how we measure it. What's the difference between confidence and overconfidence? Um, And I think maybe that one's important. I'll just say that, you know, confidence would be whatever level um, your uh, confidence in the outcome would be. So you might be confident of winning um, a certain number of matches, but that could be any number of matches, but overconfident means you're, um, expecting to win more um, than the the uh, kind of third party observer who um, is watching as an objective ob- observer um, might predict. So um, that's supposed to be the difference between confidence and overconfidence.
0: So how then do you uh, how how do you decide whether something in international relations was or an actor was overconfident?
1: Right. Okay. So probably the best thing to do is to just give a direct example. And my case study in, in on overconfidence is um, Washington and the American Revolution. So what I do there is I don't ar- argue that he was sort of a crazy overconfident person, but that um, he was pretty optimistic and pretty confident um, in his abilities and in, in, the, in the possibility of, of winning. So that's fine to claim that, but how do you kind of demonstrate that that, that's um, a justifiable conclusion? And what I try to do there is to look at the kind of facts on the ground to evaluate the distribution of um, capabilities between the two sides and whether winning a war against, you know, the superpower that Britain was back then um, was um, easy or whether it was likely And then I think perhaps most critically, what other people's beliefs were at the time. So if we want to claim that Washington was confident or overconfident about success, um, then we might expect other people to have been less optimistic um, or even pessimistic about their chances of success. And I'll give lots of examples in the chapter that that was the case. Um, So you can find other optimistic people too. But I argue that you know, of all people, uh, Washington was very confident um, in his own ability to lead the army and in the ability of um, uh, the states to um, to come out on top, um, even though, you know, the war dragged on for many years and uh, he lost more battles than he won. There was a lot of information coming back which might have suggested to a more pessimistic person that they should um, change their strategy or even give up. But um, that never seemed to cross his mind, particularly. Um, He always held on to this amazing confidence and um, um, perseverance and persistence. So it's hard to do. And this is why it's a case study. It's a kind of narrative um, analysis of of the historical um, literature to try and piece together whether it um, might be the case that he was um, on the overconfident side, should we say. But the the point of all that is to to suggest that that was not necessarily a mistake and that whoever was going to lead the army in the the revolution was going to need to be pretty optimistic, was going to need to persevere where others might give up and was going to need to maintain that healthy optimism in the face of severe setbacks and many defeats along the way. So if we start to think about the characteristics of a leader, suddenly it starts to make sense perhaps that they wouldn't um, survive or succeed if they were at least not able to maintain uh, some level of optimism.
0: So is that kind of just one of the benefits of overconfidence in international relations in general?
1: Yeah, so um, I I have a little table where I kind of list specific advantages of overconfidence, but what I didn't say just now is that um, this is not, sort of pulled out of a hat but there's quite a lot of um literature from social psychology on what they call adaptive overconfidence or adaptive optimism that um they've already figured out that actually it does serve people quite well um that optimism is not necessarily a mistake but it's sort of part of mental health so in the old days it used to be the case that um depression was seen as um when people became very pessimistic or negative, had a negative outlook on life. But uh, the empirical research showed that what in fact seems to be the case is that mentally healthy people maintain this bias towards optimism, the optimism bias. It's something we all um, tend to have. And uh, people suffering from depression are actually sort of more um, realistic. They actually have accurate perceptions rather than pessimistic. So optimism seems to be associated with mental health and the lack of optimism appears to be associated with um, your mental uh, health problems. So this is something that was um, already discussed a lot in the psychology literature and the, the role of optimism um, being seen as a, an advantage, at least as a, a kind of psychologically adaptive trait. So all I was doing really is saying, okay, well maybe some of the same logic um, applies to, um, individuals and leaders um, in the political domain too and it might even be more important there because they're facing you know serious uh, challenges daunting um, challenges that they have to overcome and lead others and um, kind of rally the troops and keep everyone else focused and positive and maintain morale as well so it might even be even more important for them or even it could be that there's a selection effect such that you can't get to that kind of leadership position unless you not only have but exude that, that confidence that others can benefit from. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting studies on the role of optimism in mental health and also the in kind of experimental effects of optimism promoting persistence in particular, that people will try harder. They'll take on more challenging tasks and they'll try harder to achieve them if they're more optimistic less optimistic people are more likely to give up um, or stop sooner.
0: So then I know you try to focus on um, the benefits of strategic instincts, but kind of where does overconfidence um, become a negative?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, again, this is something that the social psychologists have thought a lot about. So a little bit of overconfidence, a little bit of um what they would call positive illusions or a little bit of false optimism can be a good thing. Um, So it keeps you motivated, um, keeps you positive, keeps you taking on challenges. But of course, extreme overconfidence or extreme optimism would be detrimental, right? Because you'd just be uh, under the delusion that you could achieve anything and that uh, you would take on lots of tasks. It would be impossible. So there seems to be a sort of inverted U curve where some level of overconfidence brings a little bit of an edge in competition, a little bit of an advantage. Um, But when it gets too high, uh, its it's benefits get overtaken by its costs. So I think that's exactly right. And you can see lots of examples in in history where overconfidence has been taken to extremes and it's um, led to disaster. But a little bit of optimism seems to go a long way um, and help in moderation.
0: And then what about uh, fun- the fundamental attribution error? What is it and kind of what are its, its strategic advantages?
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, and the fundamental attribution error is called that because it's basically this really important um, difference in the way people attribute the causes of others' behavior. So for example, if, uh, if we're in a meeting and um, someone else shows up late, we tend to assume that um, it's a reflection of their intentions or their motivation, like they're lazy or uh, they're not interested. Whereas if we show up late to the meeting, we tend to explain it as the traffic was bad or I've got so many things going on, um, it's hard to keep up with everything. So what happens is we explain our own behavior in in situational terms. So we explain it by the constraints of our environment. You know, we're doing the best of what we can. Um, But we explain others' behavior, even if it's exactly the same behavior, in dispositional terms. So it's not the situation. It's not their environment constraining them. It's their internal traits which are um, causing them to behave in that way so lazy or disinterested or malicious or whatever. And is again, like overconfidence, a bias that's been studied a great deal in the social psychology literature. It's been replicated hundreds of times in all sorts of different settings and seems to be just a very pervasive, powerful bias which crops up in all sorts of situations. So it's really important, right? Especially if you think about the international relations context where we're constantly trying to evaluate the Intentions of other states or other leaders. And it's really important to get that right. And what this bias tells us is that we're going to be systematically biased towards assuming that others' behavior, the behavior of other states, the things they choose to do or not do, um, is dispositional. They're doing it on purpose. Um, whereas, you know, if we do something which others find threatening, we explain it away as we're being forced by circumstances to, to do this. So it's really kind of pernicious bias. And again, it's in the book because it's a well-established bias, which has been used already um, a lot to explain negative outcomes, bad outcomes in international relations. And I wanted to turn that around and look to see when when it might help.
0: And can you explain uh, how you uh, use appeasement as a case study in displaying fundamental attribution error?
1: Yeah. So... This chapter looks at Britain in the 1930s and why it did not um, step up to push back against Hitler um, earlier than it did. And the the point of this is to to do a reverse case. So I have the three different biases in the book and three case studies, and two of them are looking at where the bias helped. And this case study is looking at whether the absence of the bias was the cause of the problem. So in, in, the, in the normal uh, cognitive bias literature in international relations, you'll find people saying, here's the bias and the bias led to some bad effect. Um, I'm either trying to say, here's the bias and it led to a good effect, or here the bias seems to be absent and it led to a bad effect. So there are two different ways of demonstrating um, how biases might be beneficial. So this was the reverse case. And the basic point is, you know, how is it that Britain made this massive mistake? Um, It kind of sticks out in history as this oddity where, you know, states are usually pretty cautious and fearful of each other. Um, And if anything, they, you know, are biased in the other direction, usually to overestimate the threat from other states. And they're constantly worrying about it and arming themselves um, in case. But this was the case where exactly the opposite happened. Um, so I wanted to explore, you know, well, the fundamental attribution error would predict that um, we should have been overly fearful of, or not exactly fearful, but overly um, attributing Hitler's behaviour to dispositional causes. This is what Germany, and Nazi Germany wanted to achieve. Um, and we should have been wise to that. But in, in fact, we did the opposite. Um, so This case uh, is fascinating because I look to see whether you can see evidence of the fundamental attribution error in Chamberlain um, and then I compare him to other people like Churchill and you get this interesting within case variation where um, you sort of see the 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 telltale signs of the fundamental attribution error in Churchill and some other people like uh, Van Sittart who is in charge of um, the Foreign Office. Um, but they weren't the people in power. And Chamberlain was uh, forced by Minister right up into the Munich crisis in 1938. <laughs> and he seemed to, if anything, show the reverse of the fundamental attribution error. And that, I argue, um, led him down the road to disaster. Um, whereas someone else like um, Churchill, um, who, you know, it's hard to argue that he was suffering from the fundamental attribution error because of course with hindsight we know that that was the correct assumption to make but certainly it was aligned with that prediction um, of associating dispositional causes to Hitler and Nazi Germany um, rather than putting it all down to the, the consequences and constraints of the Versailles Treaty and the the desire to reunify the German speaking peoples and all of these other situational constraints, which the fundamental attribution error would normally tend to make us ignore or play down.
0: And what are the dangers of over attributing?
1: Well, um, in a normal case where you do have the fundamental attribution error, um, you would reduce the possibility for compromise and cooperation and increase the probability of conflict. So I mentioned that you know, I picked biases where other authors have argued that it was bad. And a good example of this is um, Deborah Larson's study of the Cold War, where she argues that the fundamental attribution error actually exacerbated and prolonged the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, um, precisely because they did tend to see each other's behavior as you know on purpose. When something vaguely threatening occurred, it was typically seen as deliberate um, malicious behavior exactly in line with the fundamental attribution error. And that made um, cooperation or uh, de-escalation harder. So that's, that's sort of typically cited, um, problem with the fundamental attribution error in international relations makes conflict more likely and cooperation less likely. Um, and I agree with that. I think sometimes that's exactly correct. Um, but you know, when it really matters, um, like the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, it seemed like the fundamental attribution error would have helped, under normal circumstances, guard against being taken by surprise. So and I have this phrase in the book, you know, where was the fundamental attribution error when we needed it? Uh, it could be <laughs> that, you know, most of the time it does lead to errors in the opposite direction. It does make us too fearful. Um, it does make us too distrustful of other states, but maybe that's how it should be. Maybe we do need to be overly fearful and somewhat distrustful on average, because every now and then there is a serious threat and we can't afford to make that, uh, that mistake in the other direction.
0: And what about in-group out-group bias? What is, what is that?
1: Right. Yeah. So this, this was the last, um, case study in the book. Um, The in-group, out-group bias. So once again, a very well-established bias in social psychology, Um, arguably sort of one of the most fundamental um, biases that the the social psychologists have not only studied empirically, but, you know, um, worried about its applied implications. Um, The bias is very simply that even if you put people into fairly random arbitrary groups, they very quickly gel together and and start to prefer aspects of other people within their group um act favorably towards them and the reverse with regards to outgroups so some of the experimental studies do things like get a bunch of anonymous strangers to tell you how many dots there are on a page with a big mass of dots and if you overestimate it you get put in group one. And if you underestimate it, you get put in group two. So the idea here is, you know, totally arbitrary. There's no reason why they should um, identify with these other group members who've been thrown together. Um, but very quickly they start to um, show these biases to, to favor their in-group and um, to be uh, not necessarily malicious, but to start to disfavor and distrust uh, the other group. So again, you know, this typically is seen as bad. Um, It's groupish uh, behavior, which can lead to all sorts of failures of cooperation and and conflict. Um, And again, I agree, often that is exactly the case. But, um, you know, back to where we started, why is it we have these biases in the first place? And maybe there are some situations in which groupish behavior helps us out. And we need to have that strong gel to help us uh, meet and overcome serious challenges.
0: And what about um, World War II and the Pacific kind of brings out this in-group, out-group bias?
1: Yeah. So having reviewed the psychology literature, then I turned to the case study of, of um, the Pacific campaign in World War II. And uh, again, the idea here is that there's a lot of literature that's been written on the, the bad things about the in-group, out-group bias, particularly you know during wartime. Um, And I just wanted to think through how it may have helped um, succeed. Um, So although with hindsight, you know, it seemed like it was an inevitable outcome back in 1941, right after Pearl Harbor, um, the United States had been, you know, hit very hard and faced this very daunting uh, major war for years to come. And somehow I had to, Um, conjure up the huge human and material resources to to fight and keep fighting um, for a very long time and for everyday citizens to, you know, stop what they were doing and contribute to the war effort in in one way or another. And uh, I just argue that the in-group bias was probably quite significant in um, helping that national emergency um, and the war effort. Um, and then the other side of the coin, of course, is you know what about the outgroup bias? Did um, the the kind of hatred of the Japanese um, help um, to promote motivation on the on the U.S. side? Um, so I argue there's sort of two sides of the coin, um, both of which probably to some extent um, increased the motivation to fight, and that there's lots of good empirical evidence to suggest that was the case. Um, as to whether it seriously affected the outcome. You know, I think it may have helped to some extent, but it wasn't decisive um, because of the, over time, the the massive industrial effort that the United States was able to put in place um, just meant that, you know, Japan was um, very unlikely to win an extended war. But what's puzzling though is that because they kept fighting, you know, the United States had to keep fighting despite massive losses which are sort of inconceivable today um, and demand unconditional surrender, which meant they were going to have to make Japan surrender. Um, And that was a hugely daunting task and it's conceivable that um, the public um, would not have supported that if it had just gone on and on for uh, uh, an unlimited time. So something kept them fighting and something uh, kept Americans supporting the war um, through incredible costs. So uh, I think the ingroup group bias was at play there. Um, again, as I said, not necessarily decisive, um, but a factor. Um, so that was that case study. And I did have an additional case study um, because of course, one problem here is you might worry about um, what I called overkill, the the, ex- the extent to which this bias might actually lead to behaviour which went beyond, you know, helping any aspect of military effectiveness and just become sort of vindictive or more likely to um, take aggressive strategies, um, because of the in group out group um, phenomenon. And uh, yeah, again, there's lots of examples of that. So, as we discussed before, there's um, no doubt a kind of trade off here where a little bit of in group out group bias can be beneficial can help uh, motivation and group cohesion. Um, And military effectiveness, perhaps, but too much um, can lead to all sorts of uh, problems and um, not just material problems and bad consequences, but also immoral ones as well. So there's the question of, you know, to what extent might this have um, underlay or um, exacerbated the desire to carry out the extreme aerial bombing and even the use of nuclear weapons. but at the end of the day, it was um, just a, a look at the other side of um, the argument that the in-group have group bias, while it has all sorts of uh, negative consequences, um, might be adaptive in the sense that it helps groups fight better when they're in a, a life or death struggle.
0: And this might seem a bit counterintuitive, but do you think that actors can knowingly assess their own cognitive biases and an attempt to receive their preferred outcome
1: yeah so it's a really good question and uh i think the, the the standard answer is no uh and this is exactly the problem with biases that we will have them and part of the reason they persist is because even when we study them in fact um we don't necessarily um overcome them and daniel kahneman himself um said that while he's also aware of all of these different biases in incredible detail he still finds himself being susceptible to them every day um, so they're, they're they're hidden from us and um, we we are not very aware of them um, and in fact some evolutionary biologists argue that that's intentional as well that if we were able to kind of control them they wouldn't work and they're, they're self deceptive they um, they perform their function below our level of consciousness precisely because that's how they um succeed um if we were able to control them then then they wouldn't um kick in at the right moment or as powerfully as they do so no i think they they are very hard to control we can do a little bit i think and there are all these training courses these days on um uh mitigating bias which can at least raise your awareness and to, help you kind of devise strategies to try and avoid them. But I think it's actually very hard to do, especially, you know, you go through all of that kind of training and study and self-reflection, but then if you're thrust into a fast moving crisis with little information and a lot of pressure and um, all sorts of other stakeholders and um, interests at stake, then uh, it's precisely that kind of situation where these heuristics and biases come to the fore and the kind of careful, rational decision-making, Um, goes out the window. So I think that is exactly the problem. You have to devise structures of decision-making which minimize the effects and consequences of biases rather than expecting people to be able to um, reduce them.
0: Right. And then you also argue as well that you can't put too many institutions in place that mitigate against these biases, correct?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the thing I said is important if you want to get rid of these biases but the, the other kind of novel conclusion of the book is well if these biases are sometimes useful then maybe we don't want to get rid of them or at least it becomes dangerous to try and get rid of them if sometimes they're helping us and sometimes they're hurting us so you need to kind of have at least a, a sense of the context in which they they can help rather than hurt um, so that that's quite difficult to know when or among whom you might want these biases to um, remain. Um, but uh, this is the beginning of this enterprise. Right? There's lots and lots of books on biases being bad. And this is, I think, the first, or at least one of the very few, suggesting that biases can be good. Um, so we need to do some more research to kind of work out the conditions under which uh, we might want these biases to um to remain or even to exacerbate them, or even if they are useful, maybe it's only on rare occasions, in which case there could be an argument to um, reduce them or eliminate them because even if they do help in certain settings, um, if it's rare enough, then it's not worth the danger of them being prevalent and detrimental in most other cases. Um, So that's a sort of open question I'd say for for future research, but certainly, historically speaking, um, I have this argument that uh, the counterfactual of a Washington that um, was not optimistic and was not confident of his abilities and did not persist in the face of failure and daunting challenges um, might have given up. So there must be cases, I think, where some of these biases were kind of necessary um, for successes that otherwise might've been
0: impossible. Right. And, and what do you think that those next steps might be for studying, um, adaptive advantages?
1: Yeah. Well, it would be interesting to get some empirical data. So all of this is, um, kind of retrospective, looking back at the archives and trying to piece together what people believed and, um, and how that contrasted with others. It would be great to do some real-time experiments where you could. Um, there are lots of good measures of these biases, which you can measure, you know, repeatedly over a period of time, and then monitor how these biases affect people's decision making. And uh, you could, in principle, um, see whether an increase in optimism, for example, or a decrease in optimism, or comparing an optimistic and less optimistic decision maker in a decision-making group. Um, how that affected their decisions in, in good or bad ways. Um, so there are ways you could, could look at this empirically. Um, there are lots of other things that could be done in terms of broadening out to other biases. Um, I plan to have two other chapters and case studies, one on prospect theory and, and another one on cognitive dissonance, two other huge biases in the literature. But uh, yeah, just ran out of time to do those as well. So... <laughs> There's more work to be done, and um, I think lots of um, low-hanging fruit for exploring how other biases typically seem as bad can actually sometimes at least be good.
0: Well, Professor Johnson, I think we've taken up a lot of your time for today. So finally, I guess you kind of alluded to it. Uh, where are you off to next? What are some of the things you are working on now?
1: Thank you. Yeah, um, well, one thing I'm working on right now is... Um, the role of alliances. So uh, most of the cognitive bias literature focuses on how do we perceive ourselves? Are we overconfident or underconfident? Are we groupish or less groupish? It's very much focused on us or our states and um, how we misperceive ourselves. And um, in this work that I'm now doing with Dominic Tierney, we're trying to think about how these cognitive biases apply to how we perceive our allies as well, um, which can be both good and bad. So cognitive biases might make us um, less likely to ally with certain other states, um, but perhaps sometimes cognitive biases make us more likely to, to form alliances. So we're exploring what the predictions are of cognitive biases for alliance formation, which uh, you know, as you know, in international relations is a huge part of the, the calculus.
0: Yes. so. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you for being here today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of Professor Dominic Johnson's new book entitled Strategic Instincts, the Adaptive Advantages of Cognitive Biases in International Relations, which was recently published by the Princeton University Press. Bye for now.